This is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the National Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from episode 55, our wrap-up of the Liver Meeting 22, plus from the vault, a segment from our wrap-up panel at International Nash Day 2022 earlier this year. Before I start, I want to note how information-rich this episode was. As a result, my conversation comments will sometimes be more about identifying the topics we've discussed and a couple of key points about each than it is about providing the kind of detailed narrative I usually attempt. This conversation comes to life with Ken Cousy discussing the impact of albumin screening in urine on helping primary care treaters focus on diabetes and ultimately providing better information to patients. He asks Will Alazawi to comment on parallels in fatty liver disease. Will suggests that in fatty liver disease, treaters have one hand tied behind their backs, as he puts it, because basic blood panels and screens do not provide the information necessary for algorithms to assess liver health seamlessly. While suggesting how challenging it is to get primary care to add new tests to a core regimen, he suggests that providing a better answer to the question, so what and why do I do this will be necessary to get those tests done more often and in a standard way. From here, Ken and I discuss how different the U.S. is in terms of mandating AST and CBC panels as part of the annual physical. I mentioned how frequently we, on this podcast, implore patient advocates outside the U.S. to make standardized testing for AST and ALT a priority. Laurent Castero discusses the French system of government-paid annual physicals and notes that AST is not measured there either. He suggests that a problem in France is that doctors still link cirrhosis closely to alcohol alcohol, not NASH, and as a result may not see the value in screening patients who do not consume alcohol. Ken points out that there are drugs for obesity and diabetes that also help in NASH, like pioglitazone and the GLP-1 agonists. As a result, he suggests, we should educate primary care to test for NASH today, because even today, there are steps they can take to help patients beyond diet and exercise. As this conversation winds down, Naim Al-Khoury provides two pieces of encouragement. The first, from a resmeterum open-label cirrhosis study, suggests that the drugs in development and close to market today may provide benefit even for cirrhosis patients. The second, more encouraging to payers, came from a study he conducted with colleagues to assess how much burden the AGA pathway would place on the U.S. system. The result? Only 8% of patients would even need to be treated by hepatologists, and with 100 million people with NAFLD in the U.S., only 4 to 5 million might require expensive NASH drugs. With over 7,000 on-site attendees and tremendous amounts of positive energy, the Liver Meeting 22 produced exciting presentations, debates, and insights on a wide, wide range of topics. As we wrap up our fifth and final episode covering this event, you can hear us exploring some issues we covered earlier from a different perspective and others we had never covered about this conference before this episode. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn discussion groups. Ken Kusi. To take an analogy from the diabetes field as an endocrinologist is that we were able to reduce the chronic kidney disease and dialysis in people with diabetes by having very clear guidance for primary care and endocrinologists on screening early with a urine test for albumin. So I think it took time, but now it's working. And I think that analogy of a simple test is where we are trying to head in the recent guidelines. Well, you did a lot of that with FIB4. I mean, why didn't you share what you learned? William Elizawi. The the urinary, I think, is very apposite here because actually if you have a test that is indicative of disease and that can be tracked and reflects real-time pathology, then I think it's, although it's still a lot of work for the endocrine and diabetes community to have got everybody on board, 
it is a slightly easier task. Now, one of the things that we know is that in primary care, the drive, understandably, is not to overdiagnose and therefore to only request the tests that are absolutely necessary. And therefore, the composition of liver enzymes and tests that are needed in order to calculate the scores that we currently have aren't things that you would do unless you are hunting for those specific scores. So you can't go back and retro-calculate the scores that you need. And what that means is that GPs already go into this with one hand tied behind their back because actually, you know, and Wayne, you'll know this better than me, that patients don't want to keep going back to, to the office for repeat sets of bloods. They want it once and done. And so I think we are in a position where in primary care and in other specialties, even in luminal gastroenterology, the idea of a panel that comprises both ALT and AST at the moment is only available when you're thinking liver fibrosis. Now, the other element of all of this, of course, is that when you have got a positive result. So even in that small proportion of individuals, you know, Ken was talking about our primary care study, fewer than half the patients, less than half the patients had even the data available in their electronic records, something like 12% in the UK in order to calculate these scores. So not having that information at your fingertips is one thing, but then not knowing what to do with it afterwards is something else. Now I know that if every single one of the specialties in medicine ask our GP colleagues, our PCP colleagues to do just one more test, why don't you just do my one test, they'd have 50 more tests and every consult would last an extra 45 minutes or so. So I think we need to be careful about the impact. So our job, our job here, why we're doing this thing, you know, talking to friends and colleagues from around the world is to make that so what clearer and to make that messaging consistent about how easy it is to find out what's going on with your liver and of course empower patients to ask the question again let's copy ken just as we empowered patients living with diabetes to say what's my hba1c yeah my, my last small comment is that this also explains how practices are a little bit different in the united states most people who are in a healthcare system would get once a year a comprehensive metabolic profile that has different things and usually would include the liver enzymes and a CBC. But it's most likely that in the majority of the world, that is not the case. So for us, it's a bit easier in the sense that we have to simply educate the people to build these these equations in, in their medical records. But Roger, we're not letting you talk here. But I think we've had this discussion with folks from a bunch of different countries and the U.S. may be the only one where AST is standard because it came up in the context of how hard would it be to get a fast score. And part of it is you'd have to have a fiber scan, but the other part is AST is not standard anywhere. So you have to have reason to request it, except in the U.S. where, as you point out, it comes up on comprehensive blood work. In fact, one of the things that we've advocated on this podcast to our patient advocate friends outside the U.S. is that a key point of advocacy should be to press for AST to be standard for anybody with diabetes, because it just isn't the case right now. Laurent, do you get a standard AST in, in France, or do you have to specifically ask in the same sense that Will was describing? Laurent Castera. The, the current situation in France that we have this system called social security with free medical checkup. So it's a very well organized network all around France. There's been a large survey published now a couple of years ago regarding the prevalence of NAFLD in the population. And the downside of it, ST was not available in this court. It was based on 200,000 French people and you could not calculate FIB4. So to approximate the prevalence of advanced fibrosis in the population, four 
Reynolds index was used, which is probably not the best test in this population because it includes cholesterol. So th this is also an issue that I hope will be solved in the future, actually. In these guidelines that were published last year in September in GEP, we really emphasize the need for including AST in the liver test. If I may add a little bit to the discussion we previously had regarding the lack of awareness of many doctors and patients as well in, in primary care. I mean, I'm sure everywhere it's the same. Most GP are over busy and liver is very low on their agenda. The reason is everyone knows alcohol can give liver disease, including cirrhosis. But very few know that obesity and diabetes also can lead to cirrhosis without any alcohol. And this is very important to educate, I think, the, the, the GPs. Another point is that in the absence of approved treatment, many GPs think that is not worth screening for these patients. What I'm going to do? A reason is there is not clear pathway in place. And if you come first with a clear pathway, of course, we know this is FIP4 followed by VCTE. This, of course, is a different story. And I think for FIP4, you should use the AMDRD model, alluding to what Ken mentioned before, raising the awareness of GP regarding CKD in diabetic patients. AMDRD now is provided systematically in France by the lab, and we should use a very similar model, I think, for FIP4. And also, at the end of the day, even though a drug is not approved, still, if you're able to figure out the proportion of patients with advanced fibrosis, you're going to change the management. Because even in the absence of pharmacological treatment, you will start a surveillance program for these patients, including screening for HCC and portal hypertension. And this makes a huge difference because this is going to change the natural history of these patients. Primary care doctors are going to be more willing to treat diabetes and obesity, knowing that they have NASH with drugs that work in NASH, like pioglitazone or GLP-1, if they realize that they are at higher risk of cirrhosis. So I, I think that for primary care doctors and endocrinologists, it, it does make sense to find if they have NASH because the message should be that they can do something about it now. That sounds reasonable. So with that, who would like to jump to a paper that promises a better future in terms of what people can do about it? Name Alcuri. I'm happy to do that. Well, first of all, I want to welcome uh, Laurent. He's, uh, he's been really someone that I've been watching uh, throughout my career. He's a great teacher. I always learn every time I hear him do a lecture and then my good friend Will as well. He's done so much work, as you said, in the primary care setting and validating the pathways that we are trying to implement now. I would say it was a great meeting. I feel like good times are coming to NASH. We have positive energy on all the societies aligning on screening guidelines. We have new developments and non-invasive tests to not only identify high-risk patients in primary care, but also to identify patients with at-risk NASH that need pharmacologic treatment and then monitor them on treatment tests like the MIFIB and MASS that are making really an impact already in the context of clinical trials. And then, of course, therapeutics. I think this was a good meeting in NASH drug development. The one study I wanted to highlight is the Harasmeterome open-label cirrhosis cohort with Madrigal. This was a study that included 105 patients with NASH cirrhosis, and they were treated with resmeterome for 52 weeks. There was uh, no histologic endpoint or outcome endpoint. Uh, it was made 
mainly looking at the impact on non-invasive tests. But we saw really very promising results in terms of reduction on liver stiffness by fiber scan, BCTE. We also saw a reduction on MR elastography. We also saw, of course, improvement in MRI PDFF and the CAP score. So I would say uh, all the NITs are heading the right direction in a cirrhotic cohort, which is really the highest unmet need we have in the field. When you look at the percentage of patients that achieved meaningful reduction in VCTE by 25% or more, there was a good percentage in the you know 45 to 55% range. We also achieved that 19% reduction from baseline MRE values. So I'm encouraged. I think this is uh, you know uh, great news for our patients with NASH cirrhosis. Of course, there is the Maestro NASH cirrhosis trial that's ongoing that will randomize about 700 individuals to resmeterone versus placebo, treat them for three years and look for liver-related outcomes. This will really lead to hopefully FDA approval of a NASH cirrhosis drugs if we can show actually that there is a difference in liver-related outcomes. Finally, uh, I just want to say one thing about the screening pathways. We talked about the AGA pathway, the ACE pathway, and I like that they align on the cut points they use for FIP4 and transient elastography. And my sense is that the ASLD will also continue to align on these cut points. We did a study where we tried to evaluate the impact of implementing these uh, pathways on a United States population level, where we started with patients with type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, or elevated ALT. And then we implemented the FIP4. And if they had indeterminate values, we did a fiber scan. And we showed that by doing this, you only need to refer about 8% of individuals at risk for NAFL to a hepatologist. So I hope that data provides reassurance to hepatology providers that we're not going to be overwhelmed with NAFL patients to insurance companies that when it comes to at-risk NASH, patients that need to be treated with expensive medicines, that this is relatively a smaller minority of patients. It's not the 95 million people with NAFL, but rather maybe 4 to 5 million people with NASH and significant fibrosis. Conceptually, it is very interesting. I mean, although sometimes one will be impressed to think that there's such a local hypothyroidism that would lead to significant benefit, but the, the evidence is proving that there is a space for treatment and improvement in histology with these compounds. Everybody is waiting to see if it really is of the magnitude that would uh, give enough approval. So I think it's just the time now to wait and see if the biology matches the hypothesis that everybody has been watching in these recent years. But there is a reasonable amount of relationship that can make this work. On the other hand, again, we want to be cautious considering that we've had some disappointments in the past. I just want to say one thing as Ken alluded to that there is maybe this hepatic hypothyroidism. I think, you know, in the phase 2B study in terms of histologic improvement with fibrosis, we didn't see a clear signal. So I wonder if this is just kind of improving that lipotoxicity environment in the liver and helping restore that thyroid balance at the liver level where we actually just give the liver a chance to regenerate and improve itself and heal fibrosis. Maybe, I don't know if it's a direct effect of the drug or just improving the metabolic environment, but the fact that we saw clear reduction on MRE and on VCTE1, VCTE, that was actually important for me as a hepatologist. At least it's a signal. And now back to Roger. 
We hope you've enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week with Shira Zelbersagi, probably the world's leading researcher on nutrition and NASH, along with Ken Cousy, probably the world's leading endocrinologist on NASH. Shira will be giving us tips about diet and self-management that will behoove all of us to keep in mind, particularly the Americans heading into our annual Thanksgiving food orgy. It's a great episode. You won't want to miss it. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.